Hi, and welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we meld with the finest minds in the networking industry. Today, we're talking to Ross Callen about, well, the history of something. We'll figure it out when we get there. So sit back, grab a pile of cookies, and join us as we talk about the history of networking. Hey, Ross. Good to see you. It's good to be here. It's good to be here, yeah. Well, you don't live very far from here, so that's why you're actually here. It's not. It's a reasonable drive. It's a reasonable through drive. Through the mountains. And cool. Over the mountains and through the woods yeah, to grandmother's with, house. This is a grandmother's uh, house. Family members <laughs> on the way, so yeah. <laughs> Something like that. So yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I actually started off right near here. Grew, right near grew, here. Grew up about 20 kilometers from here. Okay. Um Started working on uh, internet working in uh, 1980, where the internet was sort of small. I guess I lucked out. I was still in high school. That's very scary. <laughs> <laughs> One time I uh, mentioned to some, somebody came up and introduced themselves, and I said, uh, you know, it came out I'd been working on networking of one form or another since uh, 1978. And he said, oh, I was born in 1978. Oh, well, no, it's worse. I mean, I have the same problem, right? Yeah. I talk to people and I say, yeah, I got my CCIE in 97. And they say, I was three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Like, ah! So I started working on routing, right? And uh, routing protocols. And I've always sort of. Which is still it, not a solved problem. Um, it's solved in some situations. <laughs> um, and I've always liked sort of dynamic interaction between multiple systems. It's just sort of a fun problem. Yeah. And um, so I sort of got dry. You know, I liked working on routing protocols. It was interesting. And um, started noticing that it was possible for routing protocols to fail in clever and interesting ways, <laughs> which is not actually what you want. I mean, you want things to work in boring ways. Um, but... It nonetheless was interesting enough that to keep me going. Um, I started both Brandon and Newman in 1980, and uh, you know, they were, of course, working on early things that yes. sort of resembled the Internet or preceded the Internet and turned into the Internet. And um, at some point it occurred to me that this might be important, so I just kept working on it. Um, <laughs> and as I say, started off working on routing protocols, uh, did some stuff on MPLS, um, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Okay, so talk to us about MPLS. I know you were deeply involved in the origins of MPLS and what went on there and, and you know, how that came about. I mean, I always heard that MPLS was just an answer to ATM. Well, <laughs> before you answer that question, let's pull your mic around this so that you can look at Russ and still talk into the mic. Uh, so the people can actually hear me while I look yeah, at while Russ. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Uh, um, I mean, it seems to me there was thoughts for a while that there are some, when I started in networking, right, 1980, I started going to uh, IEEE 802 meetings and went to a few ANSI meetings, the American National Standards Institute, and there was a bit of an argument between connection-oriented versus connectionless networking, and right. uh, connection-oriented people would talk about IP with these enormous addresses and um, how we you know, didn't do congestion control right, and, um, or at all, and, you know, packets might get through, and if they get through, they might be out of order. And uh, Versus the argument of, well, by the time you've sent a packet, we've already sent 100 of them. You know, because it takes setting up the connection and doing the congestion control slows things down. Right. And um, so there's been arguments going back at least 
I'd say, 1980, is to connectionless versus connection-oriented. And a few of us sort of started getting ideas in our mind that there might be advantages both ways. Um, you know, maybe if, at the time, connection-oriented pretty much meant you had congestion control that assured that when you send a packet, somebody was ready to receive it. Well, the well it was always is, it was always admission control. Yeah. Right. In congest in con in connection oriented networks, you always have con uh, admission control rather than true congestion control, right? Um, because because you always end up saying, "Don't admit this packet until I tell you that you have a circuit." And in some cases, once you have the circuit, right, if you're doing, yeah, well, right. depending upon what mechanism you're using, some of them also do the retransmission on a link-by-link -link basis. So you don't send you know, more than some number of packets ahead. And right. um, looking at all of that seemed like an awful lot of overhead if you're going to run at high speeds. In, in, on the other hand, having some notion that there was a flow there and packets were going to show up seemed like it might sort of help you to do a little, like, don't accept another connection if the ones you've got are filling up your link. So there was some thoughts fairly early on that there might be intermediate spots between, say, X25 and X21 on one side versus datagrams on the other side. X25. Anybody else having nightmares right now? <laughs> no, I was actually not even in high school, so... <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm speechless. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there were some some general thoughts along those lines. Um, you know, ATM came along. Some people thought ATM could run faster than routers. Um, well, in those days, we were just at the beginning of FPGAs and right. using FPGAs for packet switching. So, so to put a time period. Well, now we're getting to 90, late 80s. 95? Well, no, no, I'd say, 80s. yeah, late 80s. I okay. would say 89 or so that, that I was talking to people who were thinking of putting IP forwarding on an ASIC. Yes. And so I was yeah. talking to some very good ASIC people about how to do that. And, and we sort of realized we could do it. Um, there was the question of, is the market big enough to be worth doing it? Well, of course... <laughs> The answer, as us technical people tended to say, is that if you put it on an ASIC, it will reduce the cost of high-speed networking, and then there'll be a market. But that's um, we were not the people with the checkbooks, right? So we didn't have to be the brave ones who were writing out very, very many zeros on our check to pay for all of that. To take the risk. Yeah, but I mean, certainly from a technical perspective, we realized somewhere around about 89 or so that it was possible to do IP forwarding and CLNP forwarding, because I was working at a company that cared about DECnet Phase 4 and, and uh, CLNP. And it was possible to put all of that on an ASIC as of you know, the end of the 1980s. Um, as I say, paying for it was a whole other issue. So um, at least a few of us thought we could do IP at pretty much any speed, um, that you could, you know, you could just get packets in and packets out, that we could do the IP header to look up. But, Apparently, that was not universally believed, and some people thought that the IP header lookup was a constraint on speed. Some people looked upon that as one argument for connections, but there's, there were other arguments, too, um, one of which is just to have some clue as to what traffic is going to show up. 
And also, um, of course, in phone networks and circuit networks, they were used to knowing pretty clever congestion control where you would route stuff around. So some connections would go one way and some would go another way to spread traffic across your network. And it's somewhat easier. Well, at least they had tools that did that well if they had connections that they could lay out. Right. And so because you could actually do time division multiplexing. You could say this section goes here, that section goes there. I'm going to stick these slots here and there. Yeah, and but also like you that. could do like, you know, um, there have been, there were some experiments in the 70s and, and 80s with delay-based routing, right? Uh, and yes. those were not, yeah. I talked about those a little bit in my talk yesterday at the ITF, and um, those were not always the most successful. Control, so I, control I theories. Ask, what is delay-based routing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, one of the things that people tried to do at some point was to have your route datagram, so connectionless, through your network. Um, you pick paths based on picking the lowest cost path, mm -hmm. and you assign the metrics to links based upon the delay of the link. So if you had a big queue, you would put a high metric. And of course, and if you put a, had a small queue, you'd put a low metric, and you might average it over some period of time. But some of the early experiments tried that averaging over relatively small periods of time, and they'd have a path that was not congested. So it would have very low metrics because no delays. Well, then they'd advertise these low metrics. And then all the other routers would see, oh, look, there's this path that have very low cost. Let's all use it at once. And then all the traffic would rush to that path, or at least a very you high percentage this of this. Of people, right? Yeah, but it was kind of, you took it from a different perspective. Right, right? but it was the same concept, yeah. right? Yeah, and so then, this is like underdamped yeah. control theory, right? Yeah. I mean, control theory was the hardest class that I think I took as an undergraduate. And it was pretty brutal, but... There are some people who understand it, and if, <laughs> if systems, I wasn't one of them. <laughs> Eventually, I figured it out, but not, not while I was a sophomore at university. Um, you know, if it's underdamped, everything floods over, and the, then the other path becomes empty, and then the metrics swap, yeah. and then everything floods over the right. other way. This so, is why EIGRP doesn't read metrics dynamically off the link. So some of the <laughs> early attempts to do this sort of delay-based uh, routing... Um, seemed to be done by people who had not fully understood the issue of damping your oscillations and didn't really come out all that well. Meanwhile, <laughs> while this was going on, the phone system was routing phone calls and was routing circuits. And they had you know, the people at Bell Labs who actually did make it through control theory as, a, <laughs> as an undergrad. Or maybe, maybe they didn't take it until graduate school and then they were able to handle it. And... Um, you know, so they had control systems, and they were naturally damped by the fact that you would lay down a circuit and leave it there, and then you would find a less congested path for the next circuit. Yeah. Um, so, again, that was one of the things when we started thinking about adding connections into your networks is um, this, you know, this sort of thing. So, you know, ATM came along, and um, ATM, the... One of the arguments that came up early in ATM was how big the cells should be. And that was actually the downfall of ATM. That turned out to be the downfall of ATM because it was like, okay, if you've got a, you know, a link of such and such a speed, which back then sounded fast but now sounds awfully slow, and your voice, you don't want your voice packet to get behind a big delay, 
So you want to have little cells so you don't have to wait for big cells, you know, for big packets to get out of the way. And, of course, today all the traffic's data, right? Because we're... I can remember people talking really fast back in 1977, and I don't think we're talking any faster now. <laughs> but, but everything, we're really trying right now. It depends on where you live, I think. <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on where you live. Depends where you live, yeah. Um, but we're sending data a lot faster, right? So now everything's data, and, and so the small cell size that might be nice for voice is not so good for IP well, packets. Actually, it was the 53 octets, and there came to this point, from what I remember, that Sprint, for instance, said, we're wasting 60% of our bandwidth because, oh, because we're only sending 20 octet supplies right. and we have 53 by octet cells and we're like sitting here with this like 30 octets in every cell being wasted. Oh yeah, I, I can remember thing. working for a, a vendor at the time, a router vendor, and I'm getting complaints from a service provider that the bandwidth was too low. You know, our, our router throughput wasn't very good and so I went and I did the math carefully. And they were routing it over ATM, and we realized we were absolutely 100% full line rate. <laughs> the problem was the ATM cell overhead was just too yeah. high. Yeah. And I think they were using like AL5, or if yeah, I yeah, they were using right. AL5. So yeah. therefore, their 40 byte IP packet did not fit in a 48 byte or 53 byte cell. Byte so cell. their 40 byte, you know, minimum TCP packets took two cells. And that was a big part of the overhead right there. <laughs> Um, there was actually that's, that's just, I mean, you think about fragmentation, all the complaints and concerns about fragmentation. Yes, that's right. And so but that's, that's today, really hard. You go back to the ATM world, and, yeah. and basically that's what's happening that's what's on happening. a massive scale. Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, ATM sort of failed because it didn't support IP very well. Yeah. Um, hmm. And, but still, people saw some value in the connections, and so how are we going to do that? Well, um, you know, I think it, I think a lot of it actually came out of Cisco, but it got taken into the well, ITF. Yakov and tag switching. Yeah, right. Yeah, that that realm. Yeah, and yeah, got got taken into the ITF, and then we, um, you know, as you do when you come into the standards bodies, you got to change something in the hopes that, that every other vendor can catch up to whoever <laughs> did it first, and um, also because you get more brains, so you, no, you, you come up with ideas. You didn't know that, Ethan. Oh, I know that. <laughs> that's the goal. Just, just in watching more closely with what's been going on yeah, the last <laughs> couple of that's years, I started goal. to figure that it's out. To, <laughs> it's to make sure that you change something so that all the other vendors can catch up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also just because you bring in a bunch more smart people and people will come up with other ideas. Um, when MPLS first came out, some people were saying it was needed to do forwarding at a high speed. Right. And that was. Originally. I thought that was bogus from day one. Because I'd already been working several years earlier on how to build an ASIC to forward IP at wow. high speed. And I realized it's, it's that interesting you think that that's bogus because that is, I think, the predominant message. You know, for I wasn't there at the time that that was happening. But if you would read up on MPLS even today, a lot of the perspective is, oh, it was all about going faster. That's what people were saying. And I believed it was bogus from the first time I heard it. And there's sort of two arguments. One is that I'd already been working on how to put IP on an ASIC, and I realized that was not that bad of a deal. I mean, it was doable. Now, I'm not an ASIC guy, right? But I worked with really good ASIC guys, and I'm more an algorithm guy, and we were looking at exactly you know, what the algorithms would be and exactly how you'd implement it and so on, and we realized it was really not that bad. So what was the major challenge in doing that? Which in the in putting it on an ASIC, I would think it's longest path or longest match lookup. 
It's the size of the forwarding table. Is it? It's the size. Yeah. The, of the, the problem is that the forwarding table is too big to fit on an ASIC. Or at least, I mean, it for sure was back then, right? Even right. though ASICs, uh, I mean, the forwarding table's gotten bigger, but ASICs have gotten bigger, but um, just fitting the forwarding table on the ASIC was the challenge. So you had to go off ASIC to pick up the forwarding table. The forwarding table, table. okay. Um, but even that was doable, right? You, okay. could, you could do the early parts of it because you're looking it up in a tree. So you can do the early parts of that on the ASIC. Okay. And... Um, so you're halfway through the address before you have to go off the ASIC. Ah, so this actually makes more sense now than when we think about the different ways that you can build a try, an M-try, yeah. so that you can push more onto the ASIC and look things up faster if you have shorter prefixes. Is that Some of the algorithms that I dealt with back then never got published because the company I was working for never had an, an, a reason to want to uh, educate their competitors. I see. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Probably but still happens today. Oh, yeah, I'm sure oh, yeah. that's a part oh, yeah. of real life oh, yeah. today, too. Yeah. Uh, one issue is patents will eventually become public. So okay. some of the stuff got patented and then eventually became public. And, of course, that was all so long ago that any patent that would have been filed back then has long, long since um, expired. Yeah. Or at least Come, has expired. Yeah, has expired. Might not have been that long ago. Yeah. But, yeah. but so then you said there were two reasons. One reason was that you were putting working to put on ASICs. What was the other reason you didn't believe that speed was The speed? ASICs? Um, now that we made you lose your train of thought. Yeah, I yeah. Back, back then, <laughs> I, I, had a, I knew what I was going to say. No, I think it was two reasons why I didn't believe that. I mean, one issue was I did not believe that speed was real. Oh, yes, there. Oh, yes, the other reason speed's not valid. If you're going to build a router that does MPLS, you also have to do IP forwarding. And you have to take your IP packet in and add an MPLS header and send it out. And adding a header is not that bad because you got the header already sitting in storage somewhere. You got to be able to take a packet coming in, look at the MPLS header and say, oh, this link state, uh, this, uh, this connection ends here, right? Ah, so you have to be penultimate or This label switching right? path ends here. So right, you got to be able to strip off the MPLS header and forward if you're doing penultimate hop. Popping. <laughs> say that 10 times very yeah, fast. Yes, I'm not going to say that 10 times. Um, or you've got to be able to strip off the header and do an IP lookup. Or strip off the header and do a lookup on another MPLS header. So it adds more different data paths that you've got to be able to handle at, at full data rate. So, and fit in memory. And fit in memory, yeah. Right? Um, it's yet another table. It's another tape. I mean, it just makes it a little more complicated. Um, so, uh, you know, to me, the whole idea that you're doing MPLS for speed was bogus from day one. However, you had big service providers there who had very, very good ways to do traffic engineering in their network with connections. And that's what they were used to doing, and they did it really well. And so with MPLS, that allows you to take some of those tools uh, and use the it same tools to, to and IP. Also, um, to do virtual private networks, you've got to do encapsulation, right? Because uh, you know, a lot of different organizations use network number 10, right, for their private addresses. <laughs> you can't just ship an IP packet across the middle of a big service provider with 10 being the destination address because right. somebody's going to guess that it's the same as a whole bunch of other people's packets <laughs> that are going past the middle and somehow you got to figure out where they're going. So you got to do encapsulation. 
Well, you could do encapsulation with datagrams. You could do IP and IP. You could do IP and IPsec and IP. The problem is there's about 40 ways to do that. And you can't do all 40 of them on an ASIC. Well, we're trying. If we picked one. <laughs> if we picked one or we picked two or we picked three, we could do it on an ASIC. But uh, one of the advantages MPLS had is there's like one way to put an IP packet in an MPLS packet. right? And so everybody did it on their ASICs. And so that became a thing to put in your forwarding plane that allows you to do encapsulation, which you have to do for VPNs. So when MPLS first came out, was there any thought of doing multi-protocol like Ethernet and stuff like that, or was it mostly just IP? Well, it was called multi-protocol label switching. Um, well, mostly pointless first, label switching, but yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was, was ratified. I mean, in principle, we could uh, do lots of other things, but, um, you know, the Internet... Basically, proved the power of open, you know, open standards. Right. And um, proved the power of having a lot of smart people work on the same problem for multiple vendors and figure out how to make it work. In the yeah, process. I mean, there's sort of two things. One is the, as you say, the smart people from many vendors. Um, another thing was the many smart people from many vendors who. Um, are dealing with an actual operating network, and they're right. not talking in theory about how it would be lovely to do something, but they're saying, we got this big network out there and it's working and we're using it every day. What do we do to make it better? Yeah. And so we were somewhat constrained by reality, by the fact that we had a real network. Um, and just the power of how do you bootstrap any major effort well, yeah, yeah. we, we bootstrapped the internet by having the U.S. government pay to build it. And then they tried to figure out how to pass it off to private companies and managed to do that. I, I think the how to pass it off to private companies actually was a major issue in making the internet successful that us technical people in the IETF mostly didn't even notice. But somebody was behind the scenes there. I bet Vin Cerf, if you, edit, if you interview him... We actually just did. Oh, okay. I don't know if he <laughs> talked about that, but I bet he knows yeah, about, I, about he, it. He did, he did talk a little bit about it, yes. Okay. He also talked about climbing on top of Steve Crocker's shoulders to break into the computing lab. I would like to watch that tape. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing we're past the statute of limitations there. <laughs> it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So what were the political or technical challenges you faced in getting MPLS out there and getting it running? I mean, are there any things that stand out in your mind that you said at some point you felt like, oh, this is never going to happen or this isn't going to oh, work? Oh, no, I never, I never thought it wasn't going to happen. Um, I had a little concern a early on. engineer. <laughs> early on, um, you know, there was talk about whether to use RSVP as your signaling protocol or, or to come up with a new signaling protocol. And there were some concerns that the how to do it with RSVP was not completely fully spec'd. But, you know, over time that got fully spec'd. And, um, you know, the specs got fleshed out and brought into the standards. And uh, we had to put together, you know, in the IETF politics, there is oddly enough some politics involved in the IETF. And, um, <laughs> we had to figure out so um, I don't believe that statement sorry, sorry sorry, for all you listeners out there who thought that the IETF was purely political free I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I could, I mean, I, really, I, I suppose I could say a little bit on the side is after I retired, because I retired two years ago, right? And I showed up for this meeting for, for a day and, and, this, and this chat. Um, and um, it, just because it's a fun thing to do. This, I'm doing this as my hobby. Um, <laughs> but after I retired a couple of years ago, I started reading. Right, and so I'm reading a lot of different things, and uh, one of the things I read was Machiavelli's *The Prince*. Oh, and so you recognize the idea? Well, I just read it and said, "Yeah, <laughs> duh, you know, this is the way things are." I mean, why are why is anybody surprised by this book? You know. <laughs> now, of course, we don't actually get to kill people in the ITF. <laughs> we just wish to sometimes. Well, well, sometimes you know people get removed from various positions of power. We we have a mechanism to remove them. Ours just happens to be more gentle than what Machiavelli had imagined. Defenestration. <laughs> Well, you have to put a net underneath first, right? <laughs> yeah, in the ITF, it's safer. put a net under yeah, the window before OSHA. we just, yeah before we defenestrate them. <laughs> um, I'm not familiar with that particular episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah. so, so we had to, you know, get, get a working group set up and uh, you know get people cooperating and. Uh, there's often a little bit of a challenge at the beginning of, you know, how much are people going to cooperate versus, uh, you know, what are we going to do? And, um, you know, IBM had some ideas and Cisco had some ideas and I was working for a different company at the time and came in and looked at it all and may have come up with an idea or two. And um, But I, I think... Well, I'm sure it was more than may have come up with, with an idea or two. But I, I think the overall process was actually pretty good. Okay. And... Um, you know, I think we came up with a good set of standards. And one of the things we showed is, um, you know, there can be um, some degree of rivalry between individuals and rivalry between companies. And we can still do good work together. And we can still do good work together. And in the end, when we do good work together, we help the Internet to grow. And, you know, the amount that all of the companies involved have made off of the Internet because we came up with good standards and because we had interoperability between multiple vendors, um, you know, it's much more profitable than it would have been to win any one fight. Right, yeah. Um, another thing I might say is I think the service providers were extremely important um, in the sense that they would come to us and say, you know, we want standards and we want to deploy a standard. And so... You know, private con private meetings between a service provider and Cisco, and a private provider, a service provider, and Juniper, and a service provider, and well, Wellfleet at at the time. Um, it would be, um, you know, you guys, you're going to make this work as a standard, and and, uh, and then we went out and we made it work as a standard, and then it got deployed. Um, so I think, regardless of how visible the service providers might have been at the meetings, I think they played a major important role of getting good standards written. And I think that's a huge part of what made the Internet a success. So yesterday you talk, gave a talk about great failures of the Internet. Well, sort of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a few things that went a little wrong from time to time. <laughs> so why don't you tell us about some of those? Because that was a really interesting talk, actually. Do you need um, to get your slides out to do that, or you, you can do it? I can probably do it from memory from a little memory, bit. Okay. Um, That's I, fine. I don't know how much we want to say today. Um, you know, back, I, I mean, I, I already, in this chat right now, talked a little bit about some of the delay-based networking right, and how delay some of that was not a, a great success. Um, 
some like the counting to infinity with rip, I think, is probably well um, documented as another problem that came up. And so, you know, eventually it occurred to us that rip was not the way to do routing. Some of us thought this sooner than others, but. Um, <laughs> I always say rip is not a routing protocol. It's what you put on your gravestone. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, mean, you, I mean, it's still deployed and used regularly it's still today. So well, I mean, I actually had one. A customer come to me years and years and years ago and say, you know, should I switch to OSPF? And I say, well, what, what are you doing right now? I'm running RIP. How big is your network? Oh, I got 10 routers. How well is it working? It works great. Solid as a rock. So I said, well, you, you just answered the question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why are you switching? Yeah. I mean, you got a small network and what you've got, it works really well. Yeah. Um, and RIP is simple. But, you know, with large networks where you have links going up and down, it, 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 it's a challenge. So, um, you know, there was obviously work in several places. I mean, you know, DEC did their DECnet Phase 5 work as a link state routing protocol. But there was, um, some people might not remember Autodin 2 that was worked on in the late 1970s. And that used the link state routing protocol. Yeah, it, it had other problems, right? And <laughs> the routing worked great, but otherwise the network really didn't see the light of day. But um, there was work on link state routing back in the 1970s, certainly. And the new ARPANET routing protocol was done in the late 1970s, and that you know did get deployed. The, the new ARPANET so, uh, so I have to ask, what was the first routing protocol you worked on? It was Frauden 2. Okay. And it was a link state routing protocol I was working on in, in 1977. Um, wow, that's really cool. And they had microloops back then too. No, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get to see microloops until I got to uh, <laughs> to other routing protocols. <laughs> okay. Um, so link state versus distance vector was also an argument that you know went on way back. It was a huge back argument. RIP and EIGRP versus uh, yep. ISIS and OSPF, and then the argument between ISIS and OSPF itself. But also before ISIS was standardized in ISO, you know, the International Standards Organization, it you know came in as a contribution from the American National Standards Institute (ANSI), and inside ANSI there were discussions about link state versus distance vector. Um, and you know, there was a proposal, um, uh, Dave Piscatello, who you might manage to interview for this, <laughs> was involved with uh, you know, a, a, a distance vector proposal that I, I no longer remember enough about that particular proposal <laughs> to comment on it. But um, you know, we, we had these discussions in detail. And I'm pretty sure the, an algorithm that was similar to what EIGRP Uses was brought into ANSI, and so I actually got to spend an evening one, you know, after the meeting, after dinner, reading the appropriate specs on how that was supposed to work, and then come back the next day with uh, you know discussions as to how I would predict it might have worked. <laughs> and um, you know, that's probably not a good topic for today, but um, no, well, it's fine. I mean, it's part of history, right? So it's part of history, and um, you know, the, the, this is stuff that we were discussing. That would be in the 1980s, though. That would be in the 1980s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, talk to us about the first failure of the fuzzballs, and like, what's oh, that? well, the fuzzballs really were like almost a glorious failure. Um, <laughs> what is a fuzzball? 
for us. A fuzzball, the, the very, very, I mean, way back, the internet wasn't called the internet, right? It was the DARPA Catanet, and there was the ARPANET at the core, and then there were a few networks came up around the edges. And it sort of, people realized that this was bigger than just the U.S. military and a few contractors. And so there was a move to create the NSFnet, which would be, you know, sort of education-centered. And so the NSF decided to fund this NSFnet, which I think was, you know, a big, big move in the right direction. But the first version of that, the core, was done by Dave Mills, who was a university professor, and I think some of his students. Uh, obviously, Dave would know better than me exactly how that was done. But, you know, this was sort of put together sort of by an academic group, and, and the original routing in the core was a distance vector-based routing algorithm based on real-time delay. And so you'd measure the queues, right? And you'd set the metric on links based upon the queues, and, you know, you'd then measure over time, and, you know, some period of time later, you'd update your metric and announce that, and then some period of time later, you'd announce it again. But this is distance vector, so you were changing the metrics that you were adding to the routes going from one hop to the next, so you would be changing what you're advertising as the distance to particular destinations, Generally, with distance vector, if you change to a smaller value, so you're announcing a lower metric, it pulls traffic to you and works relatively well. If you change in the other direction and you announce a higher value, it pulls traffic away from you, but can also lead to things that resemble counting to infinity. And um, so you get somewhat unstable routes. So you had in the core of the network a distance vector based on real-time delays with unstable metrics. So any of the problems you see with distance vector thrashing was fed by the unstable metrics. And then at the edges, this was mapped to RIP that was done on the edge. So you might have a destination that's reachable out in one particular edge, right? It would be on a RIP network hop count would get to the edge of the RIP network, so you might have, let's say, three hops to a particular destination. That would get announced into the fuzzball core as by mapping the metric of three to some particular delay. All right, so that would be advertised as a particular delay into the core. That would go across the core, and then on the other side, the delay would get mapped back to a RIP metric value Oh, and, redistribution with automatic metrics. Oh, this is a beautiful thing. Yes. <laughs> and so... I didn't say anything, but my eyes went, whoop. <laughs> so when you're announcing it out on the other edge, back into RIP, now they did carefully, you know, craft the mapping table so that if it was a distance of three at one end got mapped into a delay to go across the core, it would always be at least four when it was announced out on the other side. So at least you didn't have you know, the three getting mapped to a two and causing other problems. But you did have highly dynamic de de delays across the core being mapped into RIP with numbers that would keep changing up and down. So rather than having RIP with nice stable metrics that only changed when a link changed, you had RIP with fundamentally unstable metrics. So now you're announcing three, well, next I'm going to announce five because the delay went up. Well, oh, dear, somebody's going to be counting from three to five via some other loop for a little bit, right? And then they'll get to five and we'll be fine. And uh, But we basically had RIP fed by unstable metrics. So this was a relatively bad 
designed for a routing <laughs> protocol. That's an understatement, I think. <laughs> and probably why they no longer map that. They, do they, that. they don't. They didn't do that for very long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do have very vivid memories of being at a particular site, and I don't blame the site because this was just a site that agreed to host, you know, a, a node of of the NSF net. They they did not contribute to creating it, but I was at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Beautiful, beautiful spot. They're very kind of them to host our meetings trying to use this to get back to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where my home computer was. And so I logged into my home computer, and then the whole thing hung. And the fun thing is it would just sit there and hang for like 20 or 30 or minutes, maybe a little longer, and then it would just start working again. <laughs> and when it started working again, I was still logged into my computer on the other side of the... But, but there were students wandering around. So when it hung, if I had given up and gone home, 20 or 30 minutes later... Some student would have sat down and been logged into my computer back in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, and that's a really good idea. Some might call that a security hole. <laughs> so I, I sat there. I patiently sat there with the absolutely beautiful view, because this is up on a hill in, in Boulder, looking out over the, uh, whatever you look out of at Boulder, which is a lot of stuff. And... Um, I patiently waited for it to came back, and as soon as it came back, log out. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Let's go off for dinner to some of the great, you know, brew pubs they have in Boulder. So. <laughs> You're like, I'm really hungry. I want to go to dinner, but I have to log out first. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you could turn off the terminal, turn it back on again, you'd still be hung. <laughs> So there was a, something with the application that was not ideal either. But um, this got replaced, and of course it got replaced first with EGP, where you would have a core network that was running routing, and then you know things would be announced into it, and you would not map metrics. And then by BGP, so that you could have multiple cores, because um, at some level, as the internet went from the DARPA CataNet with the ARPANET at the core and a few networks around the edge to the NSF net, and the NSFnet core was originally these fuzzballs done by an, uh, you know, a team of, a university team really, had by, by a professor. And then it went to the NSFnet with the core being done by IBM. Um, IBM, of course, did it, put, built a, a link state based oh, routing protocol. I was going to say, the, the, the fuzzballs, when people hear that, they probably think this is like a real router. And it's really not. It's like a host, right, with a couple of network cards stuffed in it and I believe it was basically just the computer that you buy off the shelf with some network cards put into it. That's what I... Uh, I mean, it was not a huge um, financial effort by a commercial organization by any <laughs> means. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it was a, a brave effort by people who worked hard and who managed yes. to help us move along the path, right? And then when it got to the NSFnet with the IBM Core and EGP going to various routers on the edges, now we had something that actually worked. And, um, you know, uh, it came after that, it occurred to people that there needs to be more than one core as you go to a commercial internet. And, um, but in terms of the discussions of needing to go to multiple core, that was, you know, there, there's political financial discussions that us engineers didn't need to participate in. But then there was the, how do you do routing? when you have multiple cores. And that was stuff where some of us engineers did get involved in. There was a group called the Routing and Addressing, or the Road Group, 
that went off to look at that problem. I like ride better. Whatever. Too late now, I guess. Too late now, yeah. <laughs> um, so the rooting and addressing group started looking at this, and you know, I was involved in that. We were looking at various options. And then um, Yakov came up with this idea of BGP, and um, he never really convinced the whole group. I mean, he convinced me, but um, you know, I'm, I'm, I wasn't the whole group. And um, <laughs> he didn't convince too many other people, except that he came up with an approach that actually worked, right? And we got it deployed. And the road group did not decide to go with BGP. You know, the people who were building systems went with BGP. And, you know, Yakov was, of course, involved in the IBM effort to build the NSFnet right, exactly. core. And they deployed BGP, and they showed it worked. And... Um, Obviously, we did hear yesterday about a few issues that showed up along the way with BGP, but right. that's okay. Um, you know, we, we watched it while it grew and managed to uh, merge it into something that works works pretty well. Now, Rush, you said something a little bit earlier. Basically, you know, made the point that the failures along the way were really important because they drove the process ahead. Well, it was also partly inevitable, right? I mean, humans are not perfect, and... Um, one of the things I think the internet showed is you cannot take a group of really smart people, sit them in a room, and design everything, right? You've got to have an operating system and deploy stuff and say, okay, what pragmatically do we do to get through the next six months? And, okay, six months later, now what do we do pragmatically to get through another six months? And, you know, what, what problems have we seen? If you try to take you know, 50 really smart people and sit them in a room and come up with a design of everything, it's going to be too complicated. And they're going to have trouble agreeing. And if they do agree, it's probably going to be so complicated. I've seen cases where designs grow to the point where none of them can understand it well enough to shoot it down. Hmm. And then nobody shoots it down and it gets passed. Hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean if the 50 smartest people in the world can't understand it, that it's the right design. I actually like that illustration because I think yeah. that's really important, that, that designs grow, not just designs of routing protocols, designs of tunneling protocols, designs of Oh, yeah, naming and addressing. Whatever it is. And, yeah. it, all, it can grow to the point where nobody understands enough of the system to actually understand where there's a mistake or where there's a problem right. and to oppose that system going forward. Now, one of the things I think has helped the Internet is the uh, problem being somewhat partitioned, right, that... I've been working for pretty much my whole career on things that we call routers or related to routers. So right. there's routing protocols. All we're trying to do is get the packets from here to there. Right. Right. And that's, that's it. Um, what anybody wants to do with this is for somebody else to worry about. And, you know, the guys who came up with the World Wide Web, I mean, when I started working on the Internet, there was no World Wide Web. We used it for sending email and for remote login, and for shipping files. And I remember a meeting sometime in the 1980s when there, somebody was presenting the biggest applications on the Internet, and 25% of all the traffic was this thing called the web. And I thought, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out it had been something that had been started a month earlier. And it was already a quarter of all the traffic on the Internet. It was like only a month old, and I'd never heard of it. And so later that day, I found out what it was, and I looked at it, and I said, oh, this is going to work. 
<laughs> you know, this is going to be popular. I mean, that kind of growth should show you immediately. Everyone's had yeah. sort of like a... Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was the majority of the traffic very soon afterwards. I mean, certainly within another three to six months and probably quicker. Um, but but that is something that is layered on... T- you know, the, the Internet to me is this thing that, you know, as a guy who worked on routing protocols, the Internet is something that ships packets around. I can get, you know, we can get your information from anywhere to anywhere. But then other people worried about how to use this. And the World Wide Web is a great way to use this. Um, Netflix is a great way to use this. And the fact that those problems can be separable, you know, helps a lot because... Yeah, sure. Dealing with all of it. You work in your domain. Yeah, exactly. You work in your domain, right. Um, Right. There's a a saying I ran across recently I think is really good, which is that you understand your home layer. Like if you look at a layered system, you understand your home layer. You know a little bit about what's above it and a little bit about what's below it. But everything beyond that is pretty much pop Magic. psychology and rumor. Right. And, and what I use when I go home. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. That's how that's, I found the map. So I knew how to map from my hotel, exactly. walk from my hotel to yeah. here. I use it, but I don't, you know. I don't know how it works. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's important. And, and um, yeah, I mean, it's actually been a great experience yeah, working on this for the last 30, 40 years. Yeah. Well, I think we can close it off. I think that was great. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks very much for stopping by, coming all the way to Montreal from Boston to hang out with us and I'm talk pleased about to be the here. history of the networking. And um, so I'm just going to go around. I guess you don't blog or anything. Are you on Twitter? Do you tweet? Do you? No. No, okay. No. What okay. is that stuff? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's right. what my kids do. That's what your kids do. <laughs> all right. Ethan, where can people find you? Uh, packetpushers.net would be the best place to find okay. me on Twitter at EC Banks. Okay. Donald. You can find me at me, not you, Sharp on Twitter. And I'm Russ White. I'm at rule11.tech in the Network Collective. And thanks for joining us for this history of networking. And come back for a lot more great content about the history of networking at the Network Collective. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Thanks for coming on.